0: Welcome to a very special episode of Pocket Economics, the podcast about the ideas that shape the key development challenges in the EBRD regions and beyond. It's special for two reasons. Firstly, we're recording this in front of a live audience amidst the magnificent surroundings of Pushkin House here in central London. Secondly, and even more importantly, our subject today is the great Soviet experiment, the Bolshevik revolution of 1917 and the lessons that we can draw from the rise and fall of the USSR. We're taping this on November the 7th, 100 years to the day from the uprising which swept Lenin and his party to power. With me tonight, I have Sergei Guriev, a colleague who's the EBRD's chief economist, as well as lots of other achievements to his name. One Italian newspaper recently described him as one of Russia's most brilliant economists. Well, I'd argue he's probably the most brilliant of today's Russian economists. He probably wouldn't say that. Uh, I don't want him to blush like Lenin's red banner, so let's move quickly on and get the discussion started. Sergei, this is a podcast about ideas Let's go to that central idea. Marxism, Leninism, I mean, that was one heck of an idea.
1: That was a great idea. Thank you very much, uh, Jonathan, for inviting us uh, to discuss these big ideas here. Indeed, Bolsheviks decided to try this idea of collectivized command economy. And um, I would say that 74 years later, we saw that it didn't really work, didn't really outperform, outcompete other ideas which we are committed to, market economics. Uh, where people decide for themselves what is better for themselves. Why
0: do you think they ever thought it would work?
1: Well, the Tsarist economy was pretty inefficient, and uh, other capitalist economists at that time also had major problems. And in particular, in Russia, you had monopolies, you had barriers to entry, you had exploitation of workers. All these uh, statements which we learned in school in Soviet Union were actually correct, in the sense that workers were underpaid, Uh, Entry to markets was actually limited. Incorporating new businesses was hard. So uh, Tsarist economy was not efficient. And on top of that, the government was reasonably corrupt and there was a war. So uh, uh, people were searching for an alternative. And on top of that, of course, Russia had inefficient agriculture. Tsarist government tried to address that and Stalipian reform did deliver a bit, but it was too late.
0: Now we should remember, of course, a hundred years ago today was the second of the revolutions of 1917. But when it came to this revolution, this second revolution, how revolutionary do you think was it?
1: So it was very revolutionary. Although I wouldn't really call it a revolution. The big problem with the Great October. Socialist revolution is that it was not a revolution. It was actually a coup d'etat. It was not really great because it did not bring prosperity. And wasn't even October because it happened in November. <laughs> yes. So uh, that is uh, one of the misnomers. And it's a typical story about, uh, about uh, Bolshevism, that you sell ideas that eventually do not deliver. And in some cases, people who sell those ideas already knew that situation would be different. But indeed, the situation was revolutionary in the sense that that was uh, a threat of hunger. People were killed in the war. And even though Bolsheviks lost the elections to Constituent assembly in cities, and especially in garnison, garrison cities, they did have a lot of support. And that eventually played out in their favor.
0: They had a lot of support, but do you think the vast majority of people understood what it really meant? What, what the economics that were going to be, that were going to unfold, what the political ideas were going to be?
1: well i would say i would say that not everybody especially young people with guns who supported supported bolsheviks understood what's going to happen and uh, not everybody had an economics degree among those people and so they thought it's a great idea if you take something Uh, away from somebody who has it and take it for yourself. Not everybody understood the power of incentives, power of protecting private property. And in Russia, the problem was indeed that private property was only being created. Mm. And that, of course, undermined the trust in the system.
0: Let's take a look at some of the central tenets which really underpinned communism. First of all, the abolition of private property. Uh, That, again, was an amazing concept at that time.
1: Yes, uh, you would think again, before the revolution, you would think, well, look, these landlords who don't work on the land, own the land, pretty much exploit the peasants. That's unfair. Those people who own the factories, enjoy monopoly profits, they collude against the workers and against the customers. Trade policy was protecting them against foreign competition. So you see that things didn't really work. And so people said, maybe we should try something different. Take everything together and and then see maybe it wor- works out. In uh, Vojnovich's uh, book about Chonkin, uh, they describe this uh, dilemmas faced by the chair of the co who said, initially, when we brought everything together from everybody, it looked like a big chunk. It looked like it's a good idea. And then later on, this uh, chairman of the colhos was less excited about the fact that everybody tried to get things back and uh, productivity was not very high. But initially, to him, it looked like a great idea. Because I
0: mean, it's, it's quite a major change. You know, One day you own something, mm-hmm. you know, even if you're not very well off, you've got some private property probably. Next moment, you've got nothing. I mean, to have that happening almost overnight is, is quite a mind-bending concept. Mm.
1: Yes, uh, Bolsheviks actually did not expropriate the peasants right away. So initially, peasants yeah. expropriated the landlords but the uh, ultimate expropriation of the peasants themselves only happened 10 years later actually in 1928 29 30 and that's where peasants tried to also try to put a fight when uh, we had uh, tens of thousands of uh, riots peasant riots in different kind of parts of the uh, country but then at that point, Bolsheviks already had uh, a major major military force and uh, crushed, this, uh, crushed this resistance. But overall, indeed, it turned out that Bolsheviks were very smart by putting one part of public against the other. First, we expropriate the landlords, give land to peasants. Sounds like a great idea. Peasants uh, seem to have something, uh, although they used to have nothing. And then, indeed, uh, it looked like it's just a redistribution policy not unlike some uh, leftist proposals we hear proposals we, we hear today in the west but eventually they eliminated private property altogether and i think the end of that was indeed late 20s when collectivization started that's when the agriculture the backbone of russian economy at that point in in late uh, 20s we had 85% almost 90% of Workers of, of labor force being employed in agriculture and that is when the complete abolition of private property happened
0: So you've got that happening you've got the abolition of markets what what might be described these days as capitalism You know what was capitalism up to a point and even with the restrictions of, of the way it unfold in Russia But you've got the abolition of markets.
1: Yeah. That's correct. So indeed people thought that uh, well monopolized markets don't really work well So how about we tell everybody what the prices should be? And again, initially, uh, it didn't really work. And so that was a backtracking into new economic policy. But then after all, it was also uh, wiped out and uh, industrialization happened. And initially, it actually didn't work as well. Many people who studied first uh, five-year plan uh, figured out that first five-year plan was not actually implemented by far. So it was underperformed by far. And planning was not easy to do. And uh, then, again, eventually they had to backtrack a little bit. Second five-year plan was less ambitious because it turned out that uh, it does not really work as well as uh, you would think it would. So prices should be formed by the market. Planners, I would even say planners with big computers like we have now, would not be able to accomplish uh, price setting. But at that point, they didn't have computers. And actually, interestingly, they did pull off quite a feat. They planned 10,000 product categories, even though some people would estimate that in total, Soviet Union produced something like 20 million goods and services. So even at that point, this Goss plan could not plan everything. But 10,000 is quite a big number. And uh, not surprisingly, they made mistakes, and they couldn't have deliver it anyway, because planning does not work by definition, but uh, they tried. So you've got this great
0: experiment taking place, starting then, you know, for the next few years after the revolution, but in order to do it, in a sense, you've also got the Soviet Union, the USSR, isolating itself from the rest of the world, from the global economy, saying we're going to do this in controlled conditions.
1: Exactly, and uh, this is something that people don't fully understand that... Uh, Tsarist-Russian economy was still part of the global Mm. economy. Soviet economy was initially completely isolated and then only started to reintegrate. And this reintegration was actually happening in a very uh, fortunate environment for Soviet Union because the West was in a great recession in late 20s, beginning of uh, 30s. So that was a lot of equipment that could be bought and brought into Soviet industry. And that's what Soviet planners did. Unfortunately, to pay for the industrial equipment. They had to export something. And since it was an agrarian economy, they could only export grain. And uh, they didn't know how much grain peasants produced, so they decided to expropriate everything they could, which, of course, resulted in famine. Not only peasants died of famine, they also ate all bulls and horses. So productivity in agriculture was destroyed even more than people would have imagined. Actually, in late 1930s, Still, with all the tractors, mechanizations, with all the equipment, the tractive power of Russian agriculture was, was lower than in mid-20s, when all the tractive power was horses and bulls and cows, which were eaten up during the famine.
0: And then a few years into this experiment, do you think they recognize it's not really going the way they want to do it? Because you've got then Lenin's NEP, the new economic policy. And, and why do
1: that? Well, military communism did not actually deliver. And they also saw that peasants didn't like the idea that they are told to give up grain. And so they kind of postponed the complete abolition of land uh, ownership. And that only happened afterwards in the late 20s. And now this is actually a very good question, why they abolished NAP Mm. itself. So some people would say that if NAP continued, maybe it would have worked. Maybe it's a little bit similar to what uh, China did in 78 or early 80s. But or, the, Gorbachev, or Gorbachev in or the 80s Gorbachev tried, but uh, some things didn't work in, in Gorbachev's times, right? But um, in China, it kind of worked. They also started from almost military communism, almost uh, starving population, and providing l- limited amount of incentives created agricultural boom. But then people would say that Stalin wanted to stay in control, <coughs> and he actually used collectivization to... Uh, destroy his rivals in Politburo and also all together the Politburo the ruling Bolsheviks first has had an ideology and second they were afraid that NEP creates uh, middle class Mm. which may ask for political freedoms
0: and that does seem to be an absolute contradiction to where the revolution started in 1970
1: absolutely that was the whole idea was to create property less society class less society
0: You mentioned Stalin, so let's talk a bit about Stalin and his impact. So Stalin said, we're 150 years behind the advanced countries. We must catch up in 10 years. Either we do it or they will crush us. Uh, And that's when we really get, isn't it, Stalin's economic policy through terror almost.
1: Yes, this is the main counter-argument. Uh, people, some people would say that Stalin was an effective economic policy maker. This is actually very easy to reject with data, and you mentioned my op-ed in Financial Times. Mm. There I refer to our recent paper on Stalin's economic development, where we show that Stalin was effective in moving people from farm to factory, but he was also really bad in organizing factories and farms. Both farms and factories uh, were underperforming in terms of efficiency and productivity. So unbalanced Stalin's economy was not outperforming the Tsarist trend. So it was not more efficient than pre-1917 Russian economy. But then people would say, okay, we give you that, but Stalin's industrialization was not about efficiency. It was about building war economy to defeat Nazis. Mm-hmm. And that is, of course, an argument which is very hard to test because there is no simple counterfactual. You can talk about, say, Japan, which industrialized at the very same time and was outperforming Soviet Union. And it was kind of a similar level of development before, and then it was outperforming. Stalin never caught up to Japan. And Japan did not kill millions of people. Uh, Then another question is, to what extent Stalin built the industry that would allow him to beat the Nazis? And the answer is no. Alone, of course, Soviet Union would uh, not be able to beat Nazis, as Stalin himself said in 1943. He actually did say that if not for U.S. productive capacity, we would not have won this war. We would not be able to win this war.
0: And also, you could argue that uh, by the time industrialization and the five-year plans really took off under Stalin and produced, even if they didn't produce efficiently, they produced something that the terror required to deliver them was so great that it became also counterproductive because there was a disruption to productivity through purges and all the other things that were happening.
1: That's correct. So basically, the idea was in order to industrialize fast, (coughs) Stalin wanted to keep consumption low. Mm. And occasionally, he did not calculate things correctly. And so famine ensued. And uh, the current estimate is something like 7 million people dying in the famine of 32-33. And uh, then also to stay in control, he instrumented the Great Terror, which was uh, killing about 700,000, 800,000 people, mostly highly qualified, uh, top human capital individuals. So if you think about this, how productive the economy can be uh, if you kill the top million of uh, 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 human capital? And if you destroy one million top productivity, agricultural families households that that was decolonization where the the top million of families was actually repressed so these things cannot contribute to productivity of course it's it's uh, it's something which destroys destroys growth it's not it's not something that creates growth
0: so that's the first takeaway isn't it industrialization through terror just doesn't work
1: well it does the industry was built but other countries have built similar industries does it work in the without- long term well, in the long term, it's a, it's a good question, right? Uh, in the long term, uh, other countries are doing better. And uh, uh, Japan, as I mentioned, already outperformed Russia in 1930s. And then, of course, after the World War II, Japan did even better. Now, there are two issues here. One issue is to build the industry in this mass production era. And that can get you to some level. So in that sense, Stalin did build modern industry, he did import modern equipment from the US and Germany. But then what happened after World War II, when uh, he needed to move to the next stage of development, uh, innovate, uh, that is something when you need to get to higher levels of productivity, you need to provide some freedom, you need to provide competition, incentives, and that's what, of course, top-down industrialization cannot do.
0: And we'll come back to post-Second World War in just a second. Just a reminder, you're listening to a very special edition of Pocket Economics, recorded in front of a live audience at Pushkin House in London, and looking at the great Soviet experiment, the 1917 revolution and its aftermath. I'm Jonathan Charles, with me is the EBRD's chief economist, Sergei Guriev, and we're taping this episode 100 years to the very day after the Bolsheviks came to power, long enough perhaps to give us some historical perspective. Sergei, you mentioned just now the Second World War. What state then was the Soviet economy in by the time we get to 1945?
1: Well, uh, Soviet Soviet economy was a war economy. Mm. And uh, still, of course, it uh, suffered major devastation and had to be rebuilt. Part of the rebuilding effort was aided by equipment that was uh, uh, taken from Germany and uh, labor of uh, German prisoners of war, but of course it suffered major, major blows. And then the rebuilding was pretty fast. Even though Stalin's uh, Soviet Union was not part of Marshall's plan, uh, Soviet economy recovered and grew quite quickly after 1945.
0: And then we moved past Stalin. And we got Khrushchev and the idea that perhaps there needs to be some catching up with the United States and Western Europe, that, that it can't be a, an experiment in isolation, what's going on in, in the Soviet Union.
1: Yes, Khrushchev uh, did a number of things trying to catch up. Not everything was uh, reasonable and rational. <laughs> but one thing which is, again, a parallel with today's China was Khrushchev's attempt to reform uh, the regional economies. So basically Stalin's industry was built in a vertical way. Each region was specialized in one industry. Each town was one big ex- uh, enterprise. And Khrushchev thought that he needs to create competition between regions. And so he created so-called Sovnarkhose. So he moved power from Moscow-based ministries to regional-based mm. economic economic councils. And that didn't work. And that didn't work for two reasons. One was exactly the legacy of industrialization where one region would be specializing in agriculture and the other one in ferrous metallurgy. It was impossible to compare which one is outperforming which one. That is very different from China, where in China, regions developed in such a way that each region was more or less self-sufficient and therefore comparable, and that this regional, inter-regional competition really worked and continued to work until very recently. So, And then the second reason, of course, was Moscow-based bureaucrats didn't like that at all. And that's uh, what eventually resulted in removing Khrushchev. And uh, in that sense, we can say that uh, some of these ideas were reasonable, but initial conditions were wrong, and political economy didn't work at all.
0: But there were some achievements during during that period. One thinks of the space race, you know, Sputnik, Mm -hmm. all the great achievements in space. Clearly in that sense, there was a focus on some things, and and the economy was delivering in some areas.
1: Absolutely. No. Of course, one of the things things which was crucial was Khrushchev removed terror, which meant people asked for higher living standards. Mm they did not necessarily get it right away. And indeed, workers who protested against higher prices with sta- stagnant wages were actually shot at in Novocherkassk. Mm-hmm. But then, in some cases, Khrushchev did deliver on raising living standards. And until now, people still live in those houses that are called Khrushchev's, mm-hmm. uh, Khrushchev's apartments. Uh, and the reason for that was that was the first time that people in that part of the world got individual family apartments. You're
0: moving away from communal because of economy. Exactly. So you're economy from seemed from communal to be delivering apartments. in some ways. Yeah,
1: in some, in some sense, economy was delivering. And uh, and then it was the excitement about not having to be afraid of everything. Mm. And it was some re- reconnect with the rest of the world.
0: And we move past Khrushchev, and you're into the Brezhnev area. Uh, and actually, though we always think of Brezhnev as stagnation, there was that period, wasn't there, a time of high oil prices where... People are getting more. It does look as though the economy is doing better than perhaps it really was. You know, one thinks of, you know, in China, I think they used to talk about the big three that the economy would provide. There was a big three in a sense in Russia at that point, wasn't there? You know, people got an apartment to live in, they wanted a dacha, and they wanted a car, and the economy seemed to be able to, at least in Moscow and St. Petersburg, be able to provide those sort of things.
1: Yeah, at that point it was called Leningrad Mm. still. Uh, And indeed, not everybody had dacha apartment and car, but indeed, some people. People were getting that, and uh, there was this sense of relative calm and, indeed, limited prosperity. Now, there are some measures which suggest that things were not as good. People that we know are people who did get access to those goods, people who lived in Moscow, and so on, and probably people in intelligentsia were paid a a little bit better. But uh, there is now research which looks at other measures of uh, well-being that show that it is, in uh, early 70s and late 70s, where living standards actually stopped growing. Mm. So one of the measures, and this is research done by an American economist, Liz Brainerd, uh, she looks at (coughs) height of boys born in 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, and basically height is a good measure of quality of life. If your kids are not fed well, they grow up to shorter heights. And that actually shows that Moscow boys had the same height as American boys in 50s and 60s. And Moscow was not representative of Soviet Union, of course. But then in late 60s and early 70s, Moscow boys stopped getting taller. They started lagging behind American boys. And uh, eventually that shows that this is when the growth and development kind of stopped. We have this biased picture because we always think about people who were better known, people from intelligentsia who did get better access to public goods but overall the living center stopped growing and macroeconomic estimates suggest that indeed 70s were when the growth has actually stopped oil money still paid for consumer goods for some people but gdp stopped growing gdp was growing between 0 and 1% a year
0: why do you think stagnation set in
1: well that was a uh, that was a period in 1960s where uh, government understood that either you have to shoot at workers or you have to deliver growth in incomes or at least some, some kind of consumption, uh, some kind of uh, consumer goods. And uh, that's when reforms started to be discussed and again some kind of new economic policy, then kind of reforms, uh, that's what's called kasigin reform plans, and then oil was discovered. And then when oil is discovered uh, Brezhnev's government decided that s- things seem to work out, and reforms are risky and predictable. Why should we try reforms? Let's try to continue with the status quo. So that was this addiction to oil that actually helped uh, the government to delay talking about reforms.
0: Was there a sense at that point as well that the political class is exhausted? You know, I mean, you've had this revolutionary attempt from nineteen seventeen onwards. You've got quite an old political class people who've been fighting the good fight as they would see it for decade after decade. And, and you get the feeling they're sort of running out of steam, actually.
1: That's right. Uh, people who were running Soviet Union in the 70s and 80s, these are people who started their careers under Stalin. Mm. And uh, as they would uh, refer mm-hmm. to... Minister Mikoyan uh, from I- Ilich to Ilich without uh, heart attack and, yeah. and paralysis, <laughs> right? And, uh, and these people were running the country for decades and they thought things are kind of working out. And uh, in that sense, indeed, it was uh, interesting that indeed it took a younger person to start reforms. And I'm talking about Mikhail Gorbachev.
0: Mm-hmm. And and he came through despite a system that had a lack of political competition in that sense.
1: Yes, uh, so I actually asked him how that uh, came about, and he said it was a coalition of the older guys, and I won't name them now, uh, but uh, some of these older guys decided that they needed change and they understood that older guys cannot deliver change, Mm. and so they pretty much colluded with him and supported, supported reforms. But even he, while we think of him as a great reformer, and he is, he did many great things, uh, most of all delivering certain political freedoms, he was not educated in economic uh, deregulation, let's put it mildly. He was not able to figure out the consequences of, say, raising wages without deregulating prices. And so many things that he was doing pretty much failed because of lack of understanding of what economy is, how economy works, and also le- a lack of decisiveness of standing up to, say, military lobby, defense, defense industry.
0: Because I think that's one of the interesting things, you know, this, this question of not understanding how economies work, because China was undergoing change at that point, starting to change, you know, understanding there was going to have to be a role for free market economy of some sort uh, within the communist system, and then managing the change, you know, starting to manage it effectively. And yet Russia couldn't do it. And that, that parallel is always very striking.
1: This is a very important question. And indeed, there is now a debate to what extent Gorbachev understood reforms in China. And reforms in China indeed were moving in the same direction. Mm. Well, they started from a much lower level. So in a sense, what Deng Xiaoping was doing was a bit similar to new economic policy. Mm. Mm. And the level of development of China in late 70s was the same as development of Soviet Union, level of development of Soviet economy in 1920s. And interestingly, then Serapin was not necessarily a professor of economics, but he wanted to experiment. And actually the main innovation, the household responsibility system, was not initially brought from top down, but actually emerged bottom up where villagers, Got together and said, let's set this system of incentives. And turned out that they didn't die of hunger, which was the challenge at that point. And then other villagers started to copy. And then in regional conferences, they started to share this experience. And, and the central government said, it's a great idea. Let's do that. And uh, again, this is kind of basic economics, but I think the main advantage of then was uh, to allow experimentation, piloting different reforms in different parts of the economy, and so on. Now, there is a great difference between Gorbachev and then. Then did shoot protesters, mm. Gorbachev did not, at least in Moscow. We still don't know who shot people in. Uh, uh, other parts of Soviet Union. But in Moscow, Gorbachev was not prepared to shoot. And uh, in that sense, there was this feeling that Gorbachev does not have capacity to deliver on his commitments. And this is also a story why Soviet Union was falling apart. We economists, we would believe that regional leaders, Republican leaders, would be able to sit together and negotiate the redistribution of taxes, provision of public goods, and so on. And that actually happened. <laughs> There was a number of meetings where regional leaders would come together at the same bargaining table and talked about this, mm. but they didn't trust each other and they definitely didn't trust the central government because they thought central government is too weak. Central government cannot enforce what it is promising. Again, on balance, I'm very happy that protesters were not shot right at uh, myself. Maybe uh, I've survived because of that. <laughs> but. Um, <laughs> But that also was a huge difference between, between China and, and, and Soviet Union. Gorbachev was not the kind of leader who was uh, willing or able to shoot at protests. Some people would say he wouldn't just be able to do that. But what also he was not able to do, he didn't have as much power over his own ministers, over Republican leaders. And uh, when he came on board, he asked for numbers on defense budget, and he was told no. This a secret, sorry. <laughs> and only after about a year in, 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 in power, he figured out that Soviet uh, defense industry employed 10% of the whole labor force and uh, was responsible for 60% of steel output, 75% of R&D, 20% of industrial output. So it was like a major economy within an economy. And of course, uh, Standing up to a defense sector, standing up to agricultural lobbies, standing up to energy lobby. Uh, this is something that Gorbachev either was not able or not willing, or was afraid, I don't know. But he didn't do that.
0: And that defense thing is very interesting. Could I throw something else into the mix then and see what you think of it? That's another difference with China, that throughout the 80s, Russia is up against America spending very heavily. Uh, as part of the Reagan plan on defense, uh, a deliberate attempt almost mm-hmm. to bankrupt the, yeah. the Soviet economy. Uh, and when you factor the expenditure, as you've just explained, into that, it's, economic reform is bound to fail.
1: That's correct. And on top of that, Gorbachev creates this expectation that incomes will now go up as they were supposed to go up in the 70s and 80s. And uh, the only way to do that is to borrow. Oil prices came down. So what do you do? You just borrow. And Gorbachev starts with a balanced budget, then oil prices go down, and budget deficit goes up, 10% of GDP. In the last year of Soviet Union, budget deficit was 30% of GDP, 3-0. Even in today's Venezuela, budget deficit is only 20% of GDP. So that was uh, a fiscal disaster, but he could not stand up to the defense sector saying, we need to produce fewer tanks. We don't need as many tanks, because Americans have cruise missiles anyway. (laughs) So, uh, and... uh, he couldn't stand up to other lobbies he couldn't cut inefficient spending and yet he had to deliver uh, uh, increasing con- consumer consumer expenditure con- uh, increasing incomes to consumers and this is where he made yet another mistake which i mentioned uh, before if you increase wages but you don't deregulate prices shortages just explode and then people stand in line instead of working so in addition to inefficiencies related to regulating prices, you create inefficiencies related to making people stand in line instead of working and producing. And that's where economy collapsed completely.
0: And there we get to 74 years after the 1917 revolution, the October revolution in November. Uh, we, it all comes to an end. The Soviet experiment comes to an end uh, in that winter of 1991. But the legacy is still there, isn't it? We still feel it today. You know, we're, we're now all these years on from 1991. You can still see the legacy of that Soviet experiment.
1: I think there are several legacies, and uh, part of that is in the hardware. Mm. We still have the Soviet industry, which is indeed quite concentrated. We still have so-called monotowns, about 300 of them, where uh, each town would have uh, m- most most of qualified jobs, most of skilled jobs in one firm, and not necessarily a productive and competitive firm. We also have polluting industry. Uh, uh, Even though industrial production went down quite a bit and pollution went down quite a bit, in our own research in Iberdi, we still show that in post-communist countries, pollution is still above pollution in comparable emerging markets. So that is also quite striking because Bolshevik's idea was about long-term, was about social benefits, not about those myopic capitalists that only care about their own pockets. And yet, it was the Soviet industry that polluted and destroyed the environment rather than, rather than the uh, market economies. So these legacies are important, but I think the more important legacies are the kind of software, mm. the values, the culture, the attitudes, uh, the uh, suspicion to markets, Suspicion, Cynicism and corruption, how does Cynicism that fit into it? Cynicism and corruption, that's, that's very true. So if, if you regulate prices, of course, black markets appear. And so people understand that not obeying the law, circumventing the rules, it's not just a luxury, it's a necessity. And it's becoming okay to cheat, it's becoming okay to bribe, and that, of course, creates this bad equilibrium where people don't take the law as something which is delivering good things. Moreover, given that the state, even in Brezhnev years, was quite repressive, people also treat the state and the police and the courts, mm. well, you can call those things mm. courts, mm. but they, they treat state apparatus as an enemy, which of course creates, creates incentives to circumvent the law.
0: Right, I think it's time we involve our audience. Uh, as we've been saying, we're here live recording at uh, Pushkin House, we have an audience in front of us of many people, uh, and we'd like your questions. Uh, what we would ask you to do is wait for the microphone to come around, if you put up your hand, if you want to ask a question, uh, the microphone will come around, please say who you are, ask your question, and Sergey will answer it, or attempt to answer it. <laughs> who would like to ask the first question? How would
1: you describe the current developments in Russia in terms of economy?
0: And could I ask your name?
1: Sorry. Oleg Korzon. Thank you. We actually, today, we unveiled our forecast. Uh, so this is public information. I'm not going to move markets now. That came out in Financial Times and all other media and Bloomberg and Reuters. And basically, our forecast is uh, upgrading Russian economic growth to 1.8% in 2017, 1.7% in 2018, on uh, the back of uh, higher oil prices and growth in the global economy, in particular in Europe and China. Overall, we believe that Russia could have been growing at a faster rate if Russia implemented reforms, deregulating, privatizing, opening up, reintegrating in the global economy fighting corruption, improving business climate, and so on and so forth. But without those reforms, and this is our status quo scenario, our baseline scenario, we assume that Russian economy will grow between 1 and 2 percent per year, depending on the oil prices.
0: I think someone in the front row wanted to ask a question. Yes, lady here, and if you could say who you are, that would be great. Hi,
2: my name is Olga. Thank you so much for a um, wonderful monologue and A monologue interrupted by irritating questions, (laughs) that's it. Interview. Um, I'm trying to follow the um, events in Russia this year, how the revolution, the anniversary is covered. It doesn't look like it's really fashionable to do it back there, and uh, a lot of events are happening here in London, even though probably should be the other way around. So the question is, um, and obviously... (laughs) Uh, you would know that the 7th of November is no longer a holiday. It used to be a public holiday now we're celebrating something else. And so we're kind of forgetting about our our history. Whether or not communism was the right thing to do, it's another question. But is it really the right thing to do? Just kind of dump all these years and say, okay, it's not fashionable anymore, we just, yeah. Mm
1: That's a big philosophical question. Huh? Question about lack of memory. The joke goes that when you buy iPhone 10, the most important question is about getting the right amount of memory. I think lack of memory is always a problem, and we, we want to have an understanding of history, exactly not to repeat the past mistakes. And uh, I think by now, since many of the archives were opened in 1990s, some of them were closed again, But then in 1990s many of these archives were copied and you can go to certain libraries in the UK and especially in the US and especially in Hoover Institution at Stanford and you can learn a lot of stuff about Russian history. So uh, many things unfortunately are very different from what Soviet history textbooks would teach you. And people who don't look for real historical research don't know many things. So people don't fully understand that Russia did have a a republic and an election, and then, indeed, this election was lost by Bolsheviks, and so Bolsheviks simply crushed the Constituent uh, Assembly. So this is something which is not fully understood in Russian public debate. So revolution was not actually the day of November 7. The main revolution was taking over Constituent Assembly, and we still have monuments to this Matros Zeliznyak who uh, did that. Another revolution was indeed collectivization, 1928. This is when last private property of agricultural land was wiped out and so on and so forth. So this kind of history, historical knowledge, unfortunately, is not broadly known and is not in history textbooks, which I think is the most important thing. But if you want to know things about uh, Soviet history, now you can. There are many books being published mostly here, Uh, uh, you you can have all kinds of stories. So people in the West interviewed survivors and wrote stories about Stalin's Politburo, about normal Soviet life, about the last generation of Soviet Union, uh, about Lenin's brain, for that matter. One of the top historians uh, in the West uh, wrote a book called uh, Lenin's uh, Brain and Other Tales from Archives. And so he told a story how Lenin's brain was taken out of Lenin. There was a debate what to do with that. And uh, they decided to study it, but they didn't have uh, research capacity in place. So they sent it to Germany, to Kaiser Institute, and the top professor said, uh, my uh, results show that Lenin was either a genius or a crazy person. <laughs> and so Stalin said, no, we take it back and we store it until we have the right researchers. To study. <laughs> so we still don't have an answer.
0: And, I, and, of course, there is the, uh, the old joke, which is Russia is a country with an unpredictable past. That's right. yeah, and, I, and I think, you know, that still holds probably true today. Uh, but, but there is a serious point behind that as well, Sergei, to follow up on that question, which is actually many countries have very complex and complicated histories, particularly if they've lived through, you know, very unusual circumstances, which you could argue that period from 1917 to 1991 was, or other countries have had also similar issues. And it's always very difficult to evaluate how to deal with it in the current world for the current generation, how to look back on it.
1: That's a great question, Jonathan. And in this country, you also have yes. episodes of history that yes. are probably nothing to be proud. of.
0: No, I think here, you know, in the United Kingdom, people would look back on the colonial era and not quite sure how to do, how to handle it.
1: Yeah, yeah. I won't comment on recent electoral outcomes, too. <laughs> but uh, uh, this is not my job, luckily. Uh But uh, seriously, I think this is a very important question. And I think one of the painful lessons from this is you really need to tackle those issues. Otherwise, people try to rationalize mm. the past so how do you come to terms with the idea that the government simply killed 7 million people in mm. uh, in this famine how can you come to terms with the great terror where people were just killed how do you come to terms with the cutting uh, disaster so all these crimes you you just people people try to rationalize it and come out with kinds of stories that Stalin had some rationale, Stalin had some plan. Couldn't be the case that we as a country were run by this person who was really bad. Let's put it mildly. And uh, people try to uh, overcome this cognitive dissonance with stories which make no sense once you actually look at data, look at evidence, figure out what has actually happened. And I think it is true that we need to address the history and have the honest conversation. It does not really mean that you have to put in jail 80-year-old mm. people, 100-year-old people. But you have to name those who committed crimes. And uh, in principle, if you read books published here, you have the names. Mm. But uh, that is not widely, uh, broadly discussed in Russia now.
0: Uh, other questions, uh, if you want to put up your hand? Uh, okay, we'll go to the gentleman there first, if you could. Give your name, that would be fantastic.
1: Hi, I'm um,
3: Atanas Um It's interesting the parallels you drew with China, um, but you also mentioned Japan, um, pre-Stalin and after Stalin. Why, why is that? Um, I mean, Japan was very collectivist, but not really a communist uh, planned economy of, of that sense. Um, what are the economic parallels with Japan?
1: Right, thank you. Very good question. So I mentioned Japan exactly because they didn't do central planning. So basically the question is can we find a counterfactual, a country which was at a similar level of development and was growing at the same time was industrializing at the same time without abolishing private property, without abolishing market, also preparing for a war, for a war. And uh, Ending up on the right, uh, on the sorry, on the wrong side of the war, but uh, still, if you actually look at comparators, U.S. was way ahead of Russia in terms of industrial development, in terms of living standards, something like hundred years ahead. Uh, West European countries were like thirty or forty years ahead of Russia. Japan was at the same level of development, and so comparing Japanese development and Soviet development is instructive. And actually, many Western historians would say. When you compare Stalin's industrialization to something, Japan sounds like a big enough country, but also poor enough country to compare, compare Stalin's Soviet Union to Japan. China, at that point, was much poorer, of course, and uh, was not industrializing. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a good comparator. Yeah.
0: And we have a lady in the second row here, as well.
4: Hi. Thank you again for your lovely conversation. Uh, so my name is Sarah. So um, originally I'm from Russia, so and I moved a lot uh, from one town to another so my question about movement to be honest so uh, many people um, once they graduated from either university or high schools they had a lift or just an appearance of a lift uh, to move from uh, One step to another they have a located job. So and at the moment in Russia We don't have uh, that possibility. So that's why uh, people just live in the universities, u- live in college, they even found a job or they used to be on the market uh, without money, without resources, and only thanks to their parents they can move. So, my question actually uh, what do you think? Is it a is such planning um, part of the planning? Economic uh, was good, and it was more the positive moment of Bolshevism, or it has disadvantages.
0: That's a good question,
1: and
4: actually,
0: what? about whether you know, because there were possibly positive things in these things. Okay.
1: Yeah, we'll talk about two positive things. And before uh, talking about education, I would say gender empowerment was also a very important thing. And, uh, for example, election of 19. 19- Seventeen, which I already mentioned, was the first uh, the first uh, major election with uh, universal suffrage, including women. Not at that point, the United States didn't have that, and Switzerland only allowed women to vote in 1970s. Right? So, <laughs> I see a Swiss. You <coughs> poll- have a Swiss representative in the audience. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. they make very Thank fine. Thank you clocks. for allowing <laughs> women to vote. Yes. <laughs> um, so. Uh, and uh, still, you can actually trace the differences between East Germany and West Germany in that sense. And West Germany was an advanced country in many ways, but East Germany did a better job in integrating women in labor force. And you can talk about double burden, you can talk about glass ceiling, all kinds of stuff, but yet, that was a major developmental uh, move in uh, integrating uh, women into labor force. And the other thing is, of course, education. Uh, Soviet Union for all kinds of reasons believed in better education and indeed funded universal uh, basic education for everybody and built universities. And indeed, that was done also for war economy reasons as well, but in general indeed everybody benefited and uh, literacy rates were very high for the level of development Soviet Union was at. Now, when we think that Soviet Union was at par with the United States, it was not at par in terms of income per capita. It was three times as poor as the United States in terms of in, in, income per capita, or maybe more if you take into account all kinds of all kinds of uh, quality issues. But in terms of education, Soviet Union did have 100% literacy. Now the interesting part is, I'm glad you're bringing this up. What happened after Soviet Union? Actually education (coughs) expanded big time. So now we have twice as many universities and twice as many students. Now, quality of uh, these universities is not necessarily very high. And it cannot be high, because to teach something, you need to have good professors. And where do you get good professors if you expand uh, by 100% in 10 years? Professors are precious commodity. It takes, uh, takes a lot of time to prepare a good professor. <laughs> so, hopefully.
0: I think you might be a bit biased here, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but it's probably yeah. true. <laughs> yeah.
1: But uh, that, of course, the quality issue is there, but quantity is, is, is really expanded. And if you actually look at returns to education, you still see that people who go through higher education get higher wages in Russia there is a substantial material return to education. In that sense, market likes current universities as well. And also, if you look at life satisfaction of people, if you ask people, how happy are you? Better educated people, even in today's Russia, are happier. So it's not like this education is completely a waste of time. It's not. It could have been better, and I hope it will be better. But. Uh, it is It is there. It is there. So mobility, of course, is something which is very much needed. And I myself have done research on uh, internal labor mobility, and I fully agree with you. It would be great if people moved more in Russia across regions. And uh, and exactly for the reason that there are monotowns where, where you only have one kind of jobs, and this job may not be uh, there for generations to come, so you need to find another profession. So all kinds of issues are there, but I won't really say it's black and white.
0: Now, a question in the front row here from uh, Craig Kennedy.
1: Um,
3: I'd like to come back to 1917, but to sort of really widen the aperture and look at it um, from a very broad historical focus. The question is a, a simple and very difficult one at the same time. Was October or November 1917 inevitable or not? Uh, but I want to think about it not in terms of you know, Bolshevism and Marxism, but rather in terms of a different uh, conceptualization, and that is the restoration of the strong state mm-hmm. in Russia. Because some historians would argue um, that, in fact, 1917, or the Bolshevik coup, was a restoration of the strong, centralized, absolutist state that began to erode with the great reforms of the 1860s. Uh, That we had a highly centralized state with um, uh, an inserved peasantry and pretty much all of the major economic rents under the control of the state. Up until the loss of the Crimean Crimean War. That was such a great shock to the system, that they realized they needed to modernize. But in modernizing, of course, they opened up Pandora's box. Because it created space for the emergence of a middle class, a technocratically trained class. And they soon began to clamor for their own political influence and created civil society. And that the revolutions of 1905, and more importantly, February 1917, really were um, the middle class demanding political enfranchisement from the strong withering state. But that all gets turned around uh, with the Bolsheviks and the late 20s in particular. So coming back to this question, was it inevitable, or maybe more broadly, as some people argue, can Russia really only be governed by a strong state?
1: Thank you very much, Craig. Um, <coughs> uh, I, I understand that uh, uh, the great Russian writer, Boris Akunin was here <laughs> on some occasion, and he was speaking about his uh, history series, and he strongly believes that indeed since Tartar state, Tartar and Mo- Mongol state, uh, Russian government system, is indeed about centralized, strong state, and Russia is probably one of the few survivors of Genghis Khan's legacy, basically, and still is pursuing this approach to how to run things. And uh, indeed, he would fully agree with you. To what extent it is inevitable, I think um, we can ask this question, for example, uh, with regard to Korea or Germany, where you go back to, I don't know, 1950 and 60, and you say South Korea, North Korea, same country. And then somehow they diverge. And South Korea was not initially very democratic, but now it is. Several presidents are in jail uh, for corruption. Uh, Protesters can actually demand freedoms and honesty and accountability. And it's not a coincidence that these political institutions also managed to transform Korean economy, which was initially based on this centralized, industrial, investment-based growth model into post-industrial, knowledge-based, innovation-based model. For that development approach, you need freedom, competition, all this middle-class stuff you were talking about. And uh, initially, you would think Koreans cannot do that. And North Koreans would definitely say so. But you see some divergence here. So it's not about some genetic issue. It's about uh, whether the government that benefits from staying in control can convince everybody else that this is the model that can only work in our country. And uh, so far, as you rightly said, uh, many people believe that this is what uh, Russia can only do. But uh, we also see that uh, there are some Russians outside of Russia who live in market economy and kind of seem to integrate pretty well.
0: And thrive. Uh, yes, a uh, lady here in the, we'll get you a microphone, in the second row. Yeah.
4: Hi, hello. My name's Bandini Chichia. Um My question to you is, I'm just amazed at how communism had, the uptake communism had outside of Russia, basically without listing too many countries, even saying Italy or in Spain, and it really it really got um, a following. And I guess for a long period of time, the West was almost worried about the red wave and about you know, it taking over their form of government. So could you just tell us a little bit about what was so attractive about communism that it got sort of pushed out, or was there a conscious effort by the Bolsheviks to sell it, or did it just happen by itself? Did the world need something different?
0: The romanticism of communism. Yes. Yes.
1: Well, uh, in in a sense, even though Bolsheviks were very anti-church, now they're not any longer. The Russian Communist Party is very Christian now again. (laughs) Um, But uh, it was about certain Christian ideals, about uh, equal opportunity, about access, about about fairness. And... uh, Not everybody knew how things actually turned out within the Soviet Union, and Soviet Union did a great job of disinformation. Uh, We recently had Anna Appelbaum in EBRD presenting her Red Famine book, and basically Anna Appelbaum is also a disinformation researcher who says that it's not only about today's disinformation work, but it's also the Soviet times disinformation work that uh, was very effective. But I think in general, Capitalism faced major problems in 1930s, in particular. And I'll give you an example of Turkey. When Ataturk started his work, he was very much anti-Bolshevik. But in mid-30s, he said, we need to learn how they industrialize when the capitalist world is in uh, recession, in depression. And so he actually brought advisors from Soviet Union to learn, and he did follow some of those models. Not as far, not nearly as far as advisors would tell him to do, but still he was willing to learn because it was a big contrast between Soviet industrialization and Great Depression. Indians also wanted to learn. As you rightly said, South European also wanted to learn. So sure, it looked like a great idea until it was no more, right? And that is, that is also something which in, in the end of the day, you see that that was a great experiment but it couldn't pay for itself, and it lost out in competition. And uh, initially, it was based on terror. We invest, we develop, because people are happy to give up everything they have for this great idea. And if they are not happy, we'll take it by force. And then, without terror, it completely fell apart, because people were not supposed to sacrifice everything, and it was not enough to satisfy their needs. So it turns out that economic incentives really function, really work, and planning economy does not. Uh,
0: Yes, gentlemen, just there.
1: Uh, Charles, so I have a question regarding, can I ask you to play devil's advocate for a minute and um, defend the idea of a planned economy and what might be the benefits of implementing that? I don't know, not now in this modern context, but what could be the benefits of a planned economy and what could be learned from the Soviet experiment on what did actually work and what could be used today? So the initial initial motivation for planning economy, there are two motivations. One motivation is correct externalities and uh, stop abuse of monopoly power, right? So that's the idea. The monopolistic capitalism was bad because it was about exploitation by capitalists of everybody else, of workers, of consumers, and so on. So planners would be able to set the fair prices. So uh, if we think about producer of bread charging you too much for a loaf of bread, that's unfair. So how about we charge you less, Okay? Sounds like a productive idea. We know that it results in shortages, and in some cases, in famines, right? Uh, the other externality you can imagine is environment all these capitalists destroy public goods including environment bad let's do planning as I said data are not consistent with this conjecture that planners know how to take care of the environment and uh, the other the other uh, motivation was this industrialization approach so that's actually a a frontier of economic thought of 1920s, two Russian economists, Feldman and Priya Brazhensky, put together a two-sector model, quantitative two-sector model, saying that we need to industrialize and uh, we need to pay for this. So how do we pay for this? We need to take uh, grain from peasants. And that's what the model actually tells you. So if you believe in forced industrialization, <laughs> you need to do that. They advocated price scissors. You need pretty much a tax on agricultural surplus. But Stalin, again, as Jonathan rightly said, believed that we need to do it fast. And he decided to move faster. And so he decided to take 100% tax. And in some cases, more than 100% tax. And of course, that backfired in terms of economic economic outcomes as well. But these initial ideas, in principle, in theory, is something that can work. But interestingly, the empirical evidence is that they didn't because, Indeed, Soviet Union did not protect consumers. And one simple piece of evidence is people never wanted to leave from Western Germany to Eastern Germany. Mm-hmm. The, the wall was built to prevent the flow of people in the other direction. So probably living standards were not as high in East Berlin. So maybe bread was cheap, but something was wrong about that consumer model. So also the the industry was built in this gigantomania way. So you would build one big gas producing company, one big metal producing company, and so on. And of course, this is one of the legacies we have now. Competition is not very easy to promote when you have those huge, huge firms, one firm in each industry. So, and then environment, as I said, was not actually taken care of.
0: It's probably time for one last question. If there is one, if anybody wishes to ask a final question. Uh, okay. Uh, th- how about the gentleman at the back has been waiting a
2: bit of time. Werner, um, the election, the next election in uh, Russia in two thousand eighteen, so next year. Uh, let's say that you are running for presidency, you get elected. You have five years to change the country. What would be the three points on which you would focus during your mandate? So, uh,
1: <laughs> I have an exact answer to your question, but I currently am uh, working in a BRD and my contract doesn't allow me to run for President (laughs) (laughs) That's literally true. I'm not supposed to interfere in political life of countries of operation.
0: (laughs) So I will take one other last question. (laughs) There's a lady here who had her hand up if she wants to ask her question. In the third row there, yes. Hopefully, it's not about asking Sergei to stand for political office, is it?
2: <coughs> oh,
4: no. <laughs> My name is Anna, and thank you, Sergei, for coming here and talking to us today. Uh, you mentioned corruption a couple of times, and it seems like this is one of the features of Russian economy for the longest time. So as a scholar who studies uh, Tsarist economy, Soviet economy and post-Soviet economy, have you been able to compare the impact that corruption had at different stages? And if, if it is so, like, what is your conclusion on that? Thank you.
1: Thank you very much. It's a very good question, and the simple answer is no. Unfortunately, we don't have good comparable measures of Soviet and post-Soviet levels of corruption. That's actually, unfortunately, what it is. There is a broad feeling that corruption went up after the dissolution of Soviet Union. I think it's very hard to say because corruption was just different under Soviet Union. I mentioned all these connections, blood, bribes, black markets. This is also not law obedient behavior. But indeed, we probably should say that uh, leaders of uh, Soviet Union had uh, much less wealth than some of the richest Russians today. And uh, I highly recommend this paper by Filip Novakmet. It's actually been presented uh, Next two in two weeks in Iberdip. Philip Novakmet, Tamay Pekiti, and Gabriel Zuckman. Gabriel is now very much quoted because he's a top authority on offshore wealth. But this paper is actually about inequality and in income and wealth in the last hundred years in Russia. And basically, they are saying that Soviet Union decreased inequality, and then the inequality went back up after Soviet times. But of course, they have to recognize that even if you and I have the same income in Soviet Union, that doesn't mean that we are equal. What matters is who gets to get to the right shop and spend this income at regulated prices or at black market prices. And in that sense, those measures, unfortunately, are not comparable. But it is true, what is coming very strongly from this paper, is that Russia now is one of the champions in terms of storing its wealth offshore. And these people are saying that these are the very top 0.0001% of Russians who have about trillion trillion stored offshore. And Russia, in that sense, is one of the big champions in that dimension. So inequality and corruption are a big issue in Russia.
0: Okay, thank you very much indeed, Sergey. Thank you also to everyone here at Pushkin House uh, this evening. Thank you to the EBRD production team. Whether you're with us tonight here in this room or listening to this as a podcast, you can share your thoughts about the great Soviet experiment. Uh, you can do that by uh, contacting us at EBRD on Twitter or Facebook. You can also download previous episodes of Pocket Economics via iTunes, SoundCloud, or at ebrd.com podcast. This has been our first live recording in front of an audience, but I'm sure it won't be our last. There are many more to come. Until next time, goodbye.
1: Thank you very much.